The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, it is Jobs Day today. 224,000 jobs were added to the U.S. economy in the month of June. Kind of break that down and give us a sense of what it means and what the Fed, how the Fed might react. We welcome Bill Dudley. Bill is a senior research scholar at Princeton University Center for Economic Policy. He's also a former Federal Reserve Bank of New York president. Bill, we're going to start off by uh, listening to uh, National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow. He spoke with Bloomberg Television following this morning's job report. Let's take a listen. Not only do you have an inverted yield curve, which I think is somewhat troublesome uh, for the longer term, but the Break-evens on the inflation, uh, you know, the tips break-evens. The five-year, Jonathan, is 1.5%, and that's a CPI number. So the PCE deflator that the Fed uses would be about 30 basis points less than that. So you're 1.25% inflation, which is way below the Fed's target and what most people want. And that's the reason I think they should take back the uh, interest rate hike. So... Mr. Cudlow uh, saying, take back the December rate hike. Bill, Lud- Bill Dudley, what do you think? Well, I think it's still up in the air what the Fed's going to do at the uh, July FOMC meeting. I mean, this this report was stronger than expected. And so I think what it does is it takes the 50 basis points easing idea off the table, at least for the time being. And then the question is, do you do, do you stand pat, wait for more information, or do you cut 25 basis points? Uh, Larry Kudlow is obviously making the case that the Fed should cut rates because inflation expectations are you know, below 2%. Uh, but the Fed has also taken into, into account the fact that the economy looks like it's continuing to grow at a decent place. Uh, payroll gains are stronger than what's sustainable over the long run. You know, steady state is probably 100000 a month to keep uh, the unemployment rate steady. So I think there's going to be an interesting debate. And obviously, we have three and a half more weeks of data before the Fed meets. So I think it's still very much up in the air what the Fed's going to do at the July meeting. Bill Dudley, uh, former New York Fed president, I'm so excited that we have you today. One question that I keep coming back to is, what is the Fed's ultimate goal? What is their ultimate uh, objective and mandate? What's your view on that? Well, obviously, they want to keep the economic expansion going, and there's risk on both sides. Uh, Risk on one side is that if they uh, pursue a too easy monetary policy, inflation rises, and then they have to slam on the brakes, and that generates a recession. So that's risk on one side. Risk on the other side is that they tighten monetary policy prematurely, and that uh, keeps inflation below their 2% uh, long-term objective, Uh, and the economy softens. And uh, people basically ask the Fed, why do you tighten monetary policy when inflation was below your objective. And so they're trying to balance those two risks. Do you think that it is wise for them to uh, cut rates by at least 50 basis points by year end as markets are currently pricing in? 
Well, I mean, obviously it depends on how the economy evolves. I, I don't see the economy as that weak. Uh, I see the economy as doing fine. It's, it seems to me like it's growing at a, about trend or maybe a little bit above trend. The labor market, in my mind, still looks like it's continuing to gradually tighten. So I guess if I were sitting there at the FOMC, I'd be uh, more on the patient uh, camp. Uh, I probably would, in, in, at the July meeting, I probably would say, let's let's uh, have a statement that doesn't uh, close the door to future easing, but let's, let's wait and and get some more information. So, Bill, this uh, Fed has said publicly that it is data dependent. Aside from labor statistics, what do you think the Fed's really focusing on right now? Well, I think they are focused on, you know, one, what's the trajectory for GDP growth and in, in, in the state of the labor market. But two, they're also very, as, as Larry Kudlow pointed out, they're also focused on inflation. The fact is inflation has come in below uh, their expectations. So the core per- personal consumption expenditure deflator is rising 1.6% on a year-over-year basis. That's below their 2% uh, goal. And also, as, as Larry pointed out, uh, inflation expectations look like they've dropped a bit. So that's another reason for the Fed to consider easing policy. I mean, there's basically three paths to easing. One is growth is weaker than expected. The second path to easing is that inflation turns out to be lower than expected. And the third is that risk in the, in the economic outlook goes up because of perhaps uncertainty about trade policy. So there's lots of paths to get the Fed to an easier monetary policy. And I think that's really why easing is priced into the markets right now. When you were uh, head of the New York Fed, one of the roles of that uh, agency is to really monitor financial stability, financial markets. And I'm wondering what you see as the potential risks that are building with respect to inflated asset values uh, if the Fed does cut rates and given how much uh, how low rates have been kept for as long as they have. Well, I think at the end of the day, I mean, they're they're going to be focused mostly on the growth outlook and the inflation outlook, but they do have to be aware of the fact that there's not much evidence right now that monetary policy is tight. I mean, if you look at financial conditions, financial conditions do seem actually quite supportive for growth. So the strongest argument to hold off, frankly, is that policy, monetary policy is not holding back the U.S. economy uh, to any measurable degree that I can see. So, Bill, Chairman uh, Powell has suggested that the Fed might end uh, its quantitative tightening you think that's a good idea? Well, they've already said that, that they're going to bring that to the end uh, at the end of September. Uh, there's been some speculation, though, that if they cut rates in, in, at the July meeting, they might also move the ending of their balance sheet up till, to, 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 to that, that point in time. I personally think they should just keep the balance sheet policy as it is today. Uh, we're going to continue to run out securities until September uh, and then and bring that to a close. I mean, basically tying the short-term rate decision to the balance sheet decision, I think, is uh, inappropriate right now because the balance sheet decision is not motivated by you know what the Fed's trying to do in terms of the stance of monetary policy. It's motivated by how much reserves the, bank, the Fed thinks should be in the banking system, consistent with the efficient execution of monetary policy. And that's why they decided that they were going to end it in September. So I think they just should stick to that decision. So you said that monetary policy is not holding back the economy. That is the message when you look at the easy financial conditions. What would a rate cut accomplish then? Well, I think the rate cut would be, you know, basically would be insurance. Uh, it would be basically saying, look, we're unhappy uh, with some of the uncertainty about the global growth outlook. And also it would be a way of saying that we're unhappy with inflation being below our 2% objective. So I don't think that, you know, fundamentally it would matter that much to the economy if the Fed cut 25 basis points or didn't cut 25 basis points, but be a way of uh, exhibiting some unhappiness with, I think, the inflation trajectory. 
So, Bill, uh, President Trump is out with some tweets this morning on the jobs number uh, and some other topics. But uh, one of the tweets says the Trump says the uh, Fed, quote, doesn't know what they are doing and quote tweets like that. To what extent do you think they impact members of the Fed and or policy? Well, I think that the Fed has been doing a pretty good job. I and mean, we're in the we're, ha- we're basically now have the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. And I think uh, while the president would, would wants to take most of the credit for that, I think the Fed deserves some <laughs> some credit as well. Um, I think that basically the Trump's pressure on the Fed really actually probably is counterproductive in the sense that the Fed doesn't want to do something that is seen as caving into presidential pressure. They want to be seen as doing something that's appropriate given the economic outlook. So at anything, if anything, I think this probably makes the Fed a little bit more stubborn in terms of uh, moving uh, interest rates. Yeah, President Trump uh, has been speaking uh, and he has continued to speak. We'll bring you the headlines as they come out saying that, uh, that the Fed cutting rates would help the economy and he's very happy about the jobs numbers. Uh, Still with us, Bill Dudley, uh, who is the former New York Fed president. Uh, You know, one interesting sort of outcome of this strong jobs report has been a stronger dollar with the dollar uh, surging against peers today. This has also been a concern of President Trump's. He has tweeted about the fact that he would like to see it weaker, talked about currency manipulation. Would it be better for the U.S. economy if the dollar were weaker at this point? I don't. I don't understand the argument. Uh, we're basically at full employment. Uh, uh, the economy is doing fine. It's growing at an above trend pace. Why would I want the currency to be weaker? Uh, that all that would do is reduce uh, U.S. households' purchasing power of, of foreign goods and services. Um, you know, I, I don't understand why uh, a weaker currency is something that you want when you're operating an economy pretty close to full employment. I can understand a weaker currency if the economy is very weak and you're having trouble getting, you know, traction coming out of a recession. But at a time when the economy is pretty close to full employment, I don't understand why you'd want a weaker currency at that point. So, Bill, we've had uh, economists and fund managers uh, comment uh, over the last uh, several months that uh, they think a recession by mid-2020 is a possibility, maybe a likelihood. What are your thoughts there? Economic expansions don't die of old age. They usually die because either either there's an inflation problem and the Federal Reserve responds to that by tightening monetary policy, uh, making monetary policy tight, or there's a big uh, uh, shock to the economy that the Fed just can't react quickly enough to offset. Uh, There's not enough inflation for the Fed to respond aggressively to tighten monetary policy, so I think the risk of of a recession from that source is very, very low. Obviously, there is a risk of a shock uh, coming from the rest of the world hurting the U.S. economy, but the, the, the biggest one that I think is trade policy. If trade policy, if, if, if more confusion is created about what U.S. trade policy is, and that creates uncertainty about how businesses should invest, where they should invest, how they should uh, orient their supply chains, uh, that's probably the biggest risk to the economy right now, what happens in terms of U.S. trade policy. Bill Dudley, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Bill Dudley, former New York Fed president and senior researcher at Princeton University's Center for Economic Policy Studies, also uh, a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion, commenting on today's jobs report. Well, it is Jobs Day today, and what a day it is. The U.S. economy added 224,000 jobs in the month of June. 
to get a sense of what that means for the U.S. economy and Fed policy going forward. We welcome our next guest, Jim Bianco. Jim is president and founder of Bianco Research. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Just give us your first quick take on what you think the jobs report today uh, means for the Federal Reserve. Uh, I think it means that the Federal Reserve is now closer to making a mistake by not cutting rates at the uh, July meeting, and they're going to probably push this off. I think the markets have been telling us that the funds rate has been too high. The Fed went too far last year. One fun statistic for you, there's $40 trillion worth of sovereign developed market debt in the world, and 94% of it has a yield of less than the funds rate right now. The funds rate is becoming an outlier. It's one of the highest interest rates in the world. It needs to come down. The Fed is going to look at this strong payroll number thinking they don't have to do that. And I think what you're seeing in the markets is a reaction that they may may make a mistake by not cutting rates. So, uh, Jim, I know that uh, you your voice in this is particularly important because the White House actually considered you for uh, one of the open positions on the Fed's board uh, that you were interviewed for that. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, what it was like interviewing with them? What were their questions to you? Uh, it was an amazing experience to be able to do something like that, and I'm honored that they gave me the opportunity to do it. Uh, they just asked me about Fed policy. They asked me about my views of the world. Uh, they interviewed me because I'm a bit different than their typical candidate because uh, the Fed works through the financial channel, and they considered the idea of having somebody from a financial markets background as opposed to a traditional Ph.D. background as a uh, as a candidate. And I was one of the few, if I don't know, maybe the only one that was chosen with that kind of with that kind of background. And so it was a it was a very, you know, interesting, well um, ranging interview of a lot of different subjects, mainly about Fed policy and the economy. So, Jim, based upon that interview process, what do you think the Fed is is or what do you think the administration is looking for uh, in the Fed going forward? Uh, I think that, you know, if you listen to Larry Kudlow or if you listen to any of the other uh, administration officials, that they do believe that the, the Phillips curve, this idea that inflation and the uh, employment or growth are somehow linked in a predictable manner has been broken down. That you could see again today in the payroll report, 224,000 jobs created, and there was no uptick in wage growth. This is just basically thrown all of the Fed models and all of the economic models, forget the Fed, all the economic models, you know, on their ear because this wasn't supposed to happen, meaning that when you have the economy growing this fast and you have unemployment this low for this long a period of time to really show no major worries about wage inflation, let alone overall inflation. I think that that's been a big theme of theirs. It's been a big theme of mine and a number of other people as well, too that we are in a different type of inflation world and we don't need to have interest rates as high as we did, say, in previous cycles when the relationship between unemployment and inflation was different. So, Jim, when we asked about the jobs report, when Paul asked you, you said uh, it just sort of confirms that if the Fed made a mistake in December and that they should keep rates lower than where they are currently and reverse the mistake in December and accommodate more. And I'm trying to figure out What's the goal of the Fed here? I mean, how much will that actually boost the real economy for the Federal Reserve to cut rates by 75 basis points, as some traders are now predicting? 
Yeah, you know, a lot of people have asked that question a lot, you know, that in the assumption there is that uh, nobody cares about the level of interest rates, that if you were to lower interest rates, that that would not be any what of a stimulus towards mortgages in the housing market or towards autos and um, auto loans. It, you know, Wall Street doesn't you – know, nobody, nobody on Wall Street bothers with interest rates. They're not at all interested in whether or not they move up or down. Of course, this is all ridiculous. It is an important factor in the economy. And I do think that, if nothing else, what we're doing is correcting an imbalance that the rates are too high – and that it may not necessarily mean that we're trying to stimulate the economy by lowering them, but more along the lines of we're trying to stop hurting the economy by keeping them where they are now. The inverted yield curve, that is a signal that, that is that the uh, yield on the 10-year note is lower than the yield on the three-month bill. That is a signal that rates are too high. And that if we leave that in place for month after month, and that would happen if we didn't cut rates, that cumulative effect could really retard the economy. And so I think that that needs to be respected and that what we're probably doing here not is, is injecting stimulus, but removing restrictiveness. I know a lot of people have a hard time with this, thinking how can 2.5% interest rates be restrictive because they've got this long history. And I will remind them, it's one of the highest developed world rates in the world. Everybody else is lower, and there's $12 trillion, almost 13, of negative interest rates. We are an outlier, and that is why it is restrictive, because rich interest rates should be viewed in context with all other interest rates. Jim Bianco, always a wonderful thing having you on the show. Thank you so much uh, for spending your post-July 4th Friday with us. Uh, Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research, also someone who was interviewed for an open Fed position by the current White House. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. When it comes to Deutsche Bank, the question is, how far will its planned cuts go, not whether there will be cuts? And where will those cuts be most focused? Joining us now to talk about that, Stephen Ahrens, German banks reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from Frankfurt. Stephen, I want to just talk about the timeline. We've been talking about Deutsche Bank for a while. Are we getting closer to the bank actually announcing some sort of restructuring plan that we can then view as fact? Absolutely, we're moving. We're moving much closer. Uh, the the supervisory board meeting that is likely to adopt the plan will take place on Sunday. We've been told the bank hasn't officially confirmed this, but it's very likely to happen, and that will then trigger uh, under German securities law will trigger a a obligation to inform the market. So expect something on Sunday. 
Uh, and in fact, the, the, the announcement has already begun with the bank saying today that the investment banking had Goss Ritchie's leaving the bank. So that's the first instance of the whole big plan now moving into action. So, Stephen, how expansive do you expect um, the restructuring to be? It's going to be big, possibly or even probably the biggest restructuring of Deutsche Bank and its investment banking division, particularly in, in decades. Uh, the the job cuts could reach up to 20,000, probably stretched out over several years, but still, it's a very large number. It's, it would be more than a fifth of the current workforce. The cuts will also very much hit the U.S. Again, it's not clear uh, over what timeline and just how much, but it's clear that the face of the U.S. operations will will fundamentally change. There has been some uh, some speculation, including by uh, as published in Bloomberg uh, News, that Deutsche Bank will get out of equities uh, trading, sales, research, etc. in the United States. Uh, also, uh, that potentially could largely just neuter the investment bank. We did see the investment banking chief of Deutsche Bank leaving the bank uh, today, or at least announcing that he is going to be departing. What will the restructured Deutsche Bank look like? It's going to be much more focused on companies, large companies, European large companies than it has been, and shifting away from a previous focus on institutional investors. So the trading components for those investors, trading equities, trading fixed income, will be lower, especially over time. And parts that that cater to the capital markets needs and then the general banking needs of large corporates such as trade finance, cash management, uh, those businesses will, will like or grow. Steve, do you expect Deutsche Bank in any way, shape, or form to uh, admit that they have, I guess, given up their aspirations to be a truly global investment bank here? I mean, they're not going to say it <laughs> like that, right? <laughs> they're going to, uh, they're going to, highlight just that they continue to have a global footprint. I'm not sure they're going to completely shutter any any in uh, outposts, any countries completely. They probably, as you said, they may uh, shutter completely the U.S. equities, but uh, it's not clear whether any countries will completely be dissolved, the presence there. So they will continue to highlight the global presence. But yes, they will admit that there are Europe-focused banks. They have been admitting this actually for a while. And uh, they're not going to claim anymore that they can still compete with the big U.S. investment banks that now in the trading area especially have a much bigger presence than Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank shares today up 3.8%. I'm looking at the ADRs uh, in the United States. I'm wondering whether there's any discussion still about a possible merger. I know that Commerce Bank and TB were looking at a potential tie-up. That fell through. Is that basically off the table, that concept? Definitely for now. This restructuring now will is designed to happen without any big merger. They're still looking to uh, grow their asset management business, DWS. They're looking for uh, takeovers there, but the bank itself uh, is not currently looking at anything. They were previously in talk with, with Commerce Bank, as you said, and they've even held some brief informal talks with UBS. But for as long as the share price is as low as it is now, uh, that's not something that will happen. Steve, do you expect uh, Deutsche Bank to address the home market, Germany, uh, the concerns that it's tremendously overbanked? Um, kind of what is their strategy to try to shore up the profitability of their core market? Job cuts and cost cuts, again, uh, in a nutshell. 
they uh, earning money in the German retail market is extremely difficult. Interest rates set by the central bank is, are extremely low, and so margins are low, and compet- the competition is extremely tough. So the only way you can actually boost profitability is by taking out costs. And they have said that they continue to aim cutting the workforce in the German retail and commercial clients business by about 2,000 a year. That's going to continue. And uh, and so we'll see if that at some point will actually yield a profitability that they think is sufficient. Steve Ahrens, thank you so much. Uh, Steve is a German banks reporter, uh, Bloomberg News based in Frankfurt, focusing on Deutsche Bank. Well, Lisa, I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I am quite the grill master. I can cook just about anything on the grill. And in a suit. And oftentimes in although, a suit. <laughs> although, full disclosure, Paul Sweeney has gone full cash today. Full we're cash. talking We're talking full cash, Paul Sweeney style, which is basically his pajamas with khakis <laughs> and, a, and, and, and a collar shirt, but not a suit. So. Exactly. So, I mean, I think I've cooked just about anything there is to cook on a grill. But this Bloomberg Business Week, they are out with a story today that is making me rethink my strategy. Kate Crater. Uh, Kate is the food editor for Bloomberg Pursuits. Uh, Kate, thanks so much for joining us. This article is just fantastic. It's basically what not to grill uh, on a grill. Which is everything. Which is almost everything. But let's start with the most obvious. Talk to me about the hamburger thing. I know, yeah. This caused some controversy at my um, 4th of July cookout this weekend, um, yesterday, because we talked to a bunch of chefs, and they said, actually, if you want the best burger you shouldn't put it on the grill because you're losing like valuable fat and juices is just dripping into the fire. And so we are asking people to step away from the grill with the burger patties. This is ridiculous. I'm sorry, Kate. I mean, come on. You're basically saying to people, you know, you guys think you can grill, but you, you kind of, you kind of stink at it. So just stop. I mean, give me a break. I mean, is it just the optimal taste or, or, or what's the, I mean, it's basically. No, it's optimal taste. I mean, of course, this is America, and people can do what they want, and they can grill whatever they want. But we did. It's um, it actually is kind of funny to think like chefs watch amateur cooks, um, at the grill, maybe like Paul, and are like, "Uh oh, you are doing that wrong." He just so, he just got red um, in the eyes. He's like, "I'm no <laughs> amateur." Right. So, okay. Um, so tell us about this this article. You guys, you went out and you talked to interviewed chefs, kind of uh, all over the place about different types of food, right? Exactly right. Yeah, it's high grilling season. And so, you know, it really is fun. Like everybody, it's a, it's high grilling season and food tastes delicious on the grill. But in fact, if you want things to be perfect, some of some things really shouldn't be on shouldn't be cooked on the grill. So something like burgers, of course, I'm not sure how many people we really are going to dissuade from <laughs> from putting patties on the grill. But some things like you see them in restaurants, fancy restaurants like grilled Caesar salad and it turns out that lettuces actually are not very good on the grill because they're so full of water that they will wilt and burn as you cook them. So you really shouldn't. And likewise, another chef from Washington, D.C. doesn't like to grill fruit because even though it's sometimes good, 
often if you grill something like peaches, they disintegrate on the grill and they also flavor your grill and they pick up any flavors that are there. So if you just cook some fish, then your peaches are going to taste like fish. <laughs> That's okay. not so good. So I, I was reading this this article and I love that you did it. It got me really heated with a couple of the things. The burgers <laughs> really was just like, you know, you might as well throw something at the screen. Uh, even lettuce. I mean, okay, whatever. You let people do what they want to do. There were some good points, though. And I will say the whole concept of peeled shrimp on a grill, it does dry them out. And they were saying that there is a way to do it so that it won't dry them out, right? Yeah, no, exactly. If you have shell-on shrimp, if you buy shrimp that aren't, you know, that aren't pre-peeled, then they are marvelous on the grill. That's really good. It's when you peel them because they're really delicate and they're going to burn. They're either going to burn or not cook well, depending on how high your heat is. And we actually looked at this a couple of years ago, too. And another thing that people really shouldn't grill are shish kebabs with mixed, you know, you see them and they look really Give me fun. a break. <laughs> Come on. What are you going to do? Stick them in, no, the, in a boiler? I I'm going to on a boiler, but the thing that you can do is put the same things on. So you can put like all your meat on one skewer and then you can put things like cherry tomatoes on another. But when you mix them up, the onions, like I don't know if you've ever had them, but it's really hard to get onions to cook in a way that you want to eat them if it's next to something that cooks quickly like shrimp. So just divide. It's just you just make like neat little piles have each have a dedicated kebab and then you are good to go. All right, I'm learning something. I'm learning something. So let's <laughs> let's go to, I mean, the one thing that made sense to me, I saw in your article, uh, bacon, uh, is that just, you know, the kind of the old fire hazard thing is I think I've almost, you know, set a blaze to my house several times. burning time. your house <laughs> down. Right, exactly. Yeah. Starting fireworks with those and also uncooked sausages. So a lot of people cook something like kielbasa, which is already cooked, and that's fine. Like totally grill that. Grill that with fry, be happy. But if you have... If you have, there's a lot of these artisanal uncooked sausages that you see, you know, links and links of them attached or thick cut bacon. And that is like a fire hazard, as you were saying, you know, you can start a fire with all the fat in there and it also won't cook well, you know, because it's probably going to burn on the outside while it's still raw on the inside and then you can't eat it. So you really shouldn't. And plus, like if it's in the sausage and it's a casing, it can explode out. So there you go. All right. Well, Kate, you said that this caused a lot of controversy at the cookout that you had yesterday. What were people most jazzed over or most uh, ignited? Burgers. <laughs> I would say people were most ignited over the burgers. They really were like, you can't tell me. Top chefs can't tell me how to cook my burgers. But, you know, actually, there were people I couldn't believe I had any support here. But um, my friend had worked as a fry cook for a while at a beach club. And he was like, it's true. If I'm cooking burgers for people who are standing there, I will cook it on a grill. But if I'm cooking my own burger, I cook it on a flat top. So I had some backup. So I see in the um, you spoke to uh, the owner of Latin, Latin, I don't know, Latin Grand Central Terminal um, mm-hmm. in New York. And nice they try. said, yeah, they said, do not <laughs> cook tortillas. That's something I never even thought about cooking. Well, you know what I think when people are making tacos, because it's a fun thing to do, you know, people are definitely expanding their repertoires on the grill and you see people maybe cooking like chicken that they're going to put, you know, in to make tacos with. And that's really fun. But and so to facilitate it, some people will throw tortillas on the grill. And this guy is clearly a purist, this guy, Julian Medina. And he's like, nope, don't do it. Just it's better to wrap them in foil or you can you can like heat them on again. You can heat them on a plancha. You know, okay. Or- Taking a step back, I do have to say, as the mother of two boys and who has understood the uh, the importance of time, 
these chefs are kind of opening themselves up to sort of criticism that they're not really facing reality. I mean, it is so easy to throw things on a grill and fast and convenient that the idea of saying, well, you know, it's not perfect because maybe it'll be slightly wilted is absolutely ridiculous for people who are trying to serve a lot of people or who have small children. I mean, is there a caveat here that this is just their personal preferences or are they basically saying you're a heathen if you do it this way? No, I think I think all of them will allow. I mean, I think you would be hard pressed to find a chef who has not cooked a burger on a grill. So I'm not sure any of them. This is like the hill they're going to die on. <laughs> but um, right. but they're saying if you want the ultimate burger, like the best burger, it really is good cooked on a flat top because then you develop that crust. Like it gets that delicious charred crust, caramelized, and you're not losing like juices and fat to the fire. But I can guarantee you that I'm sure they have all cooked burgers on the grill, and I'm sure in the future you will be able to bust them all cooking burgers on the grill. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kate, are people, in in your reporting, are you finding that people are, you know, grilling as much or more than they used to? Yeah, no, people love it, and people are grilling year-round now. That's the thing. You can buy so many different kinds of grills, whether you have, like, a small city apartment or a huge backyard. Um, There's so many different grills that are being built now to suit all kinds of lifestyles and the way people live. So people love to grill. And the other thing that's cool is you can grill over all kinds of things. You know, it used to be that people were, would just maybe talk about wood, but now they talk about a specific kind of wood that they want to cook on. People are really geeking out on it and it's kind of fantastic. So uh, Kate, if you are going to a barbecue at someone's house, (laughs) what should you bring to the barbecue as a guest? That's a great question. (laughs) Um, I think I always think it's good to bring a bottle of rosé because it's the drink of the summer, you know, and, you know, then you don't have to fight about what people are going to grill on, you know, whether or not you should be grilling those burger patties. But um, what kind of barbecues do you go to? (laughs) (laughs) I go to one where people drink a lot of rosé, I guess. (laughs) But um, but I think um, I think that's always a good thing. I think bringing dessert is good. You can find so many great, you know, packaged cookies and they come in like these really cool tins or, you know, what else is there? You know what? Actually, I brought to a party the other day because it's like such prime season is strawberries. So, uh, you know, I would eat yep. cookies. But if you can find the fruit that's in season, there's so many farmer's markets now. And if you get just like a really nice little basket of something, there's nothing better than that. Kate Crater, thank you so much. Kate is food editor, if you couldn't tell, for Bloomberg Pursuits and just a fantastic article on the Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's essentially the takeaway is kind of what not to grill and why. And it's, and the why comes from some famous chefs who kind of, you know, they kind of know what they're doing. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.